I got to tell you right now, I, I, I covet your prayers. Uh, you know, it's just one of those mornings where I, I feel like uh, I'm being distracted by various things. And, and uh, you know, for whatever reason, some, uh, different things are pulling at me. So, so I really appreciate your prayers as, uh, with me as I, as I preach that I can remain focused on what God has called me to do and that you'll remain focused as well as, as we share. Uh, the Lord, I know, wants to speak to us and share with us today. Uh, let me ask you to, to turn to Acts chapter 2. We're going to actually begin with verse 36. We're going to jump right into, we heard the early part of Acts chapter 2 this morning as we thought about the uh, encounter of uh, the Holy Spirit with his church on that, first, on that first Pentecost. We're going to jump right into the midst of this with Peter after he has received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has shaken that upper room. Peter bursts open the doors and he begins to preach a message out in the streets. And I want to pick it up right there and then we're going to discover this morning what the early church looked like. And we're going to be talking about that over the next uh, several weeks. Now, before we go on, I want to welcome a couple of special guests today. I think uh, Mr. and Mrs. Labrado, Tim's parents, are with us out from California, I see. We are so grateful to have you. Would you just stand so we can acknowledge you and recognize them? And let's welcome them, shall we? So grateful to have you. God bless you. And I think they're heading home today, uh, this evening. Is that right? Yes, okay. Well, well, we're grateful to have you with us and uh, grateful for uh, uh, Tim took some time off this week to be with them, and, and I hope it's been a good week uh, with them. I want to begin here with Acts chapter 2. Hey, can I invite you to stand with me as we prepare to receive this word together? Again, Peter is preaching the end of his message here, and this is what he says. Therefore, let all of Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that very day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. May God add this blessing to his word. You can be seated. Well, we are just a few weeks away from some major transitions as we look toward uh, moving from this, uh, from this room for a short season into the Family Life Center and, and going through and, and doing the renovations on this side of the building. Now, of course, the purpose of all these additions and renovations and transformations is, is, is really where we are seeking to reach a, a new generation to grow as a, 
as a congregation, to provide a place where people are comfortable, but, but more than that, where they will come and they'll freely be able to receive the gospel that Peter preached on that first Pentecost. Now, I want to tell you that growth is important for a church. Healthy churches, by and large, should grow. But growth is not the only measure of a healthy church. In fact, in America, we have come to believe that everything that is bigger is always better. And that's not necessarily true. Pastor David uh, shared last Sunday, and I just uh, I love to listen to Dave preach, and I am so grateful to have him as a part of our staff, seeing him grow in his role as pastor of discipleship here. I've got to tell you, he's a man I admire for his intellect and even his sense of humor. But he and his family, this, this uh, tomorrow, I believe, are heading to Texas uh, this week, where Ginger, his wife, uh, is from. And, uh, you know, Texans themselves have developed a reputation over the years. I heard uh, some people from Chicago were showing a man from Texas around the city. And they showed him the skyscrapers of downtown. And the Texan responded, well, that's nothing. We've got tombstones in Boot Hill that are bigger than that. And the Texan then, they showed him the stockyards in Chicago, and he said, that's nothing. We've got, we've got branding corrals in my backyard that are bigger than that. And the people in the Chicago area there got kind of really tired of the, the, this man talking about how big and good everything was in Texas. So that night, they, they filled his bed with snapping turtles. Well, he got upstairs, he threw back the sheets, and, he, and said, what in the world are those? And they said, well, in Chicago, we call them bedbugs. <laughs> he took a look at them, and I said, you know, I guess you're right, but they're young'uns, aren't they? <laughs> Just because something is bigger doesn't make it better, That true. Uh, Some of the largest churches in the country, in our country today, preach a health and wealth gospel. But in their stadium-sized auditoriums, you will never hear about the cross or sin or repentance. So while our heart as a church is to grow, and we want to grow because we care about people, and we want them to come to know the redemption that only Jesus Christ can offer, we perhaps need to use some other criteria to determine the overall effectiveness of our ministry. This morning, we celebrate Pentecost, the birthday of the church. The day when the Holy Spirit came upon a small group of believers gathered in that upper room. They believed in Jesus. And when that Holy Spirit came, the world began to change. What would happen if we would compare our church to that early New Testament church? A river is purest at its source. And in the book of Acts, we see the very first church in Jerusalem just a few days after its inception. And I... I think in that we see the evidence and criteria and marks of a church as God intended his church to be. And so over the next several weeks, as a result of that, I'd like us to look at those marks of the church. And over that period, then I'd like us to do some some genuine reflection, self-reflection as a congregation. And I think as we look at those marks, I suspect we're going to see some areas where, where we are doing quite well. And there may also be some areas where we are going to be challenged to improve. This morning, therefore, I want to look at those 
those marks, and I want to deal with three of them today, and I'd like you to join with me in that. The first of the characteristics that stands out to me as I look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42, is this. What strikes me in this passage is first that the church in Jerusalem was a learning church. It was a learning church. Acts 2.42 begins by saying they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Jesus' followers were first called disciples. And you know what the word disciple means? Literally, it means a learner. A learner. Jesus spent three years teaching these learners, teaching them, and, and preparing them. And in John 16, 13, he told his disciples that the Holy Ghost, when he left, would come upon them and the Holy Spirit would teach them and guide them into all truth. In Matthew 28, Jesus gives that great commission. We've dealt with that over the last several weeks. And as he does that, before he ascends to heaven, he says, I want you to go into all the world and make disciples, make learners baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and that you teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. So the church from the outset was to be a learning church, a learning community. But what is interesting to me is that we see the disciples themselves then have a title change. They went from being a disciple, a learner, to apostles. That means one who is sent. Jesus taught them, and now he was sending them to teach others. So on the day of Pentecost, that Jewish feast celebrating a great harvest, the Holy Spirit falls, there is a mighty rushing wind, tongues of fire, and Peter immediately bursts out of that room and begins to preach a message to teach the people in the streets of Jerusalem what the Old Testament said about the Messiah, how the Messiah was supposed to come and how he was to die for their sins and be raised from the dead. And so that day, 3,000 Jews believed in what Peter said. They, they were convicted of their sin. They were repented of their sin. And then they were baptized into Christ. And they became a part of that church that day. But I want you to see that the apostles did more than just win them to Christ and congratulate them when they came out of the baptismal. It was then that they began to teach them about what Jesus said about how to live the Christian life, how to apply the scripture to their marriages and to their families and to their workplace and to their community. The early Christians devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles. Now think about that word devoted. That word devoted means to adhere to, to persist obstinately. The, the apostles' teaching was very important, and the church was eager to learn. Now, today, the apostles' teaching is, is found in the New Testament. And I want you to listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3. He says, but as for you... Continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So the church 
ought to be a place where we continue to learn the Bible. I was talking to a couple on Friday, and they had grown up in another denomination, and they said, Pastor, we never saw a Bible. We were in church for years, but we never saw a Bible, except up front. One of our core values as a church states that we are growing people who change within. And and I want you to understand, we believe that change comes as we study the Bible and apply it to our lives. As we study the scripture, we gain wisdom for salvation and we work out that salvation through the power of the Holy Spirit. So as a church, it's not enough for us to say we are a Bible-believing church. We must also be a Bible-teaching church. And listen, if you go to church for years and you don't learn anymore or know any more about the Bible than when you first came, either you're not paying attention or that church is not fulfilling its responsibility. It's our desire as, as a leadership team to make the Bible our textbook and, and, and to help you learn about it. That's why when I preach, I, I like to take extended passages or, or develop a biblical character and see their lives. More than anything else, I want you to come to know the Word of God. Because if you are grounded in God's Word, you're gonna, you're gonna, it's going to come alive to you. It's going to shape your marriage. It's going to shape the way you look at the world. And by the way, when you hear false teaching, and there is a lot of that out there, your, your ears are going to prick up. You're going to understand and be sensitive to that. And you're going to say, that's not right. That's not right. And I'm not going to go in that direction. When I was uh, 17... I was just 17. I took part of a a mission trip. Uh, We were on a, 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 it was the second year I participated in this, but this second year we were on a music ministry tour and uh, we were going to go through the southern states, but we took a week at a Virginia Beach Friends Church to, uh, to, to practice and get to know one another and prepare for the rest of the month. Well, that week, I spent some time with a couple who I did not know at that point who hosted uh, me in their home. And by the time the week was over, this couple pulled me aside and said, Jeff, we think God has called you to be a preacher. Now, I told them that I was beginning to maybe sense that call too. I didn't know what it all meant, but, but I sensed that God was working. So they asked me this question. They said, well, Jeff, what is your favorite book of the Bible? Now, to be honest, at that age, I wasn't all that knowledgeable about the Scripture. I should have been. I knew a lot of stories, but but to think about my favorite book, I'd never even given it much thought. So I did what you did. I just made something up. I said, well, the book of Romans has always, you know, been something for me, you know. So when when I got home a, a few weeks later from this mission trip, there was a beautiful new copy of a commentary by J. Vernon McGee on the book of Romans right there for me to open. And over the next few months, they sent me a new commentary, the entire Through the Bible series by that preacher. Now, I remember thinking, man, I, I said I liked Romans. I better figure out what Romans is all about. And so... The rest of the summer, I remember sitting by the pool reading through that commentary, and I don't know that I understood everything, but I was trying to figure out what Paul's argument was and trying to make sense of it. 
But it is at that point when I became convinced if I really was going to be the kind of preacher that God wanted me to be, it would be because I knew the word. I understood the word and I need to wrestle with it. I needed to grapple with it. So I made the decision when I got to college and I went to Asbury, as many of you know, I decided to become a Bible major because I wanted to know the Bible and I wanted to understand it as best I could with my limited capabilities. Very few, I note, even today, even in Christian schools, are Bible majors anymore. That's kind of, that's, you know, we'll, we'll do a lot of other things. But there aren't too many people who are willing to really just study the Bible. But I became convinced that when I preached, I needed to use a lot of Scripture. Because I knew that the Scripture was really true. And I could count on it. If I made the mistake, that was one thing. But the Scripture would always be relevant and true. I'm not called to preach philosophy. I'm not called to preach psychology. I'm not called to preach economy or self-help. God has called me to preach the word. Now, I'll be honest with you. I've done this for decades now. And still on a Saturday, late Saturday night or early Sunday morning, I'll wake up in the middle of the night and I'll think, what am I going to do tomorrow? Sometimes I just sit there and I think about the awesome responsibility I have to, to, to speak and share. And I think about who am I to stand here and tell you how to live when I fall so short in, in so many ways myself. You know, it's in those moments the Lord reminds me, Jeff, this isn't about you. You preach the word. You allow it to flow in you and convict you, but you allow that word to go through you, and I will do the work. But use a lot of scripture because you know that that's always true. And that's been one of the themes of my ministry, I hope. So let me tell you right now, if you go into our church and you remember my illustrations, I'm going to be flattered by that. If you go to our church and you laugh at my silly jokes, I'll really like that. If you go to our church and you write notes about the message and you keep track of my outlines, you know, that's going to delight me to be sure. But my real heart is this. If you've been here for years, I would love it for you to be able to say when I sat under Jeff Schultz's teaching, I understood the word. I learned a lot about scripture. It made sense to me. It came alive to me. It came together for me. And that's the one thing I know. If you know scripture, it'll, it'll take a hold of you. It'll become true for you. The church was devoted to the apostles' teaching. Are we devoted? The second mark that I want to point out this morning is, is that the New Testament church was rich in fellowship. Another core value of our church is listed is loved people don't do life alone. Now, this is an expression of, of what we see in the early church. The New Testament church wasn't just a classroom. It was a fraternity. The people knew one another. They cared for one another. Verse 46 says, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They wanted to be together. 
They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. You see, the picture that's being developed there is that they were more than people who just shared common beliefs. They, they, they shared their lives together. Jesus said in John 13, verse 35, By this everyone will know that you are one of my disciples. If you love one another. I was thinking this past week that there are four analogies that all begin with the letter B in the New Testament about the church. And what's interesting is if you think about it, all of them involve this idea of togetherness. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the church is referred to as a body. And the members of the body have to be attached and are under the headship, the subjection to the head, or they're of no value whatsoever. The, the second one I thought of is in 1 Peter chapter 2, the church is compared to a building. We are the living stones of God's building. And of course, for those stones to work, they're cemented together for stability and structure. In 1 Corinthians 10, 17, the church is compared to bread. The ingredients of flour and yeast and salt and oil and water all have to be blended together to form a loaf. Finally, the church is compared to a bride getting ready for her husband. But even then, you think, well, that's the, the bride ha has a bunch of ladies helping. To, have you ever seen a bride who didn't need a lot of uh, people to help her get ready? So the, the point is, the church has to be more than an audience. Think about what an audience is. An audience is an unrelated group of people drawn together by a short-lived attraction. But that's not a church. A church is a unified body under the leadership of Christ whose members depend on each other for survival. Now, listen, this is where the introverts among us get nervous, isn't it? How many of you hate it when I say, hey, let's get up and, and greet each other? Some of you do, are willing to, yeah, right. Some of you aren't even willing to do that because you you're too introverted to let me know that you don't like to do that. Boy, some, for some of us, you know, the idea of talking to somebody, the idea of even touching somebody, that can be difficult. And, 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 and let's acknowledge that. I, I have an introversion about, my, about, about me. But, but this is where I think we have to be challenged. I, I, I challenge you this summer to invite people in the church to your home or out for coffee. Find somebody, somebody else, somebody you don't maybe know as well, and invite them over. I came across this verse, so I think it was on Thursday, and I just found myself reflecting on this for a bit. Romans 12, verse 10, Paul writes, outdo one another in showing honor. Now think about that. Outdo, you want, you talk, some of you are competitive. Some of you like to do better than other people. Paul says, if you're going to be competitive, be competitive in outdoing, or outdo one another in showing honor to each other. You know what the greatest honor you can give to a person is to say, you know what? I'd like to get to know you better. You're interesting to me. When you take that risk and you say, I want, I want to know you, 
You're stepping out in faith and saying, I can learn something about my, my relationship with God by, by, by entering into a relationship with you. One of the things I would suggest is a great way to fellowship is through work projects. Never mind that we have a lot of work projects here at the church this summer. We're going to have a lot of opportunities to come in, and I hope that you'll take those opportunities to, to work together when you get dirty and you're out there talking and you're, you're, just, you're just getting to know one another. That's a great thing. We're going to have a lot of work to do through all the transitions. Or join a Sunday school class. Yes, there's teaching, but one of the great things about a Sunday school class is there's fellowship or a Bible study. And the great thing about fellowship is that you will finally discover that you are not alone. We, we've started the breaking bread. If you've not been involved with that, try it. Silver Friends, the Loft Groups, the Women's Ministry Groups. When you have friends, let me tell you, it, it, it can make such a difference. I, I, I don't think Carrie is here this morning. We've been praying for Carrie Junkins. She's been sharing with a group of us through uh, Messenger Facebook, I guess, for some time. We've been praying for her as a church, but, but she also has some, some closer friends. But this, this week, she found out that she was cancer-free. Well, praise the Lord, but you know what she wanted to do? She wanted to share it with her friends, and we, we were able to rejoice with her in that because good news and difficult news isn't meant to be taken alone. Some of you are alone, and God doesn't want you to be alone. But, but maybe you need to step out. Maybe you need to, to think about this challenge of fellowship. So the first characteristic that we see clearly is that the Jerusalem church was a teaching church, a learning church. The, the Jerusalem church was a, a church rich in fellowship. But thirdly, I just have you note this morning that the Jerusalem church was also a communing church. The Bible says that they gathered together to break bread. Now that is referring to the Lord's Supper. Holy communion, in other words, was very important to the New Testament church. You get the sense, in fact, as you read the book of Acts, by the time you get to the later chapters, it, they, they almost took it every day, perhaps, but Acts 27 later says that on the first day of the week, they came together to break bread. The indication is, is that in the New Testament, the church at least would often take communion weekly. In 1 Corinthians 11, we see Paul emphasizing the importance of the practice of the Lord's Supper, observing it. In John 7, Jesus had said, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have life and my flesh is real. My, my flesh is real meat and my blood is real drink. But in the Corinthian church, if you know anything about what was happening the, they had abused the practice. They had really made a mockery of the Lord's Supper. The Corinthian church would come together and, and they would be divisive and arrogant. There were the rich people and they didn't want to hang out with the, the, the lower class folks. They would bring all their food and they would have a gluttonous meal and many of them would drink and even get drunk during their big feast. And then they would practice together the Lord's Supper. 
But there was this division within the church. They were doing, it had really gone off the rails. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty two, Paul goes as far to say is, What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. And then he goes on to say, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That phrase, do this in remembrance of me, is in the present imperative form. means that we are to keep on doing it on a regular basis. And he did the same thing with the cup. Do this in remembrance of me. Charles Swindoll called the Lord's Supper a sacred pantomime. What happens when we participate in the table is we are forced to confront the very physical reality of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. The reality of Christ dying on the cross for my sins, for your sins. His blood spilled out for us. Now, remember why that's so important, because that's where the church, that's why the church is here. Jesus died for us. He died on our behalf. He died for me. He died for you. It was my sin that led him to the cross. Verse 26 says, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So in this act, we remember what he has done, but even more so, we remember he's coming again. We remember what we're headed for, and that is a feast where he's going to be with us, and we will be eating eternally with him in the kingdom of heaven that he has established and promised for us. One more thing, verse 27, Paul writes, So then whoever eats the bread, now remember who he's talking to. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of our Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves. And and I think we ought to just stop right there because I want to say something. No one is worthy who comes to the table. This does not mean that that only perfect people come to the table. Otherwise, we could stop right now because it's all over, right? I'm not serving it, and you're not going to receive it because we're all unworthy. We're all sinners. Perfect people are not invited to the table Forgiven people are invited to the table. People who have recognized, Lord Jesus, I recognize what you did for me. I understand that without your sacrifice, I had no hope of heaven. I have no possibility of relationship with God. But because of what you've done for me, and because I see my own sin, and because, Lord, I honestly confess that sin and want to live a life that pleases you, I give myself to you in a new way. I confess my need for you, and I want to live for you. 
the table was very, very important to the early church. Now, sometimes we, we spiritualize it, and, and I understand that, and I know there's some history there. I think sometimes it can become rote and meaningless. That has certainly been an abuse of the church through the centuries. But this morning, we're going to come to the table. And I'd like to emphasize this moment that we examine ourselves. Would, would, would you take just a moment and ask the Holy Spirit to go into your heart and, and examine your life? And if there's anything that is not of him, would you give him permission to reveal that and deal with that right now? So that when we come to this table, we come with sincerity and gladness of heart. Let's, let's just bow our heads right now. I'm going to ask Tim to come and let's just take a few moments in his presence. me to read from Colossians chapter 1 verse 21. Paul writes, and this is such good news for us. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. He does not hold our sins against us when we confess them freely and repent. On the night our Savior was betrayed, we're told that Jesus met with his disciples for his last supper. He took some bread and he gave thanks to the Father and then he broke it. And he said, take and eat for this is my body broken for you. 
Do this in remembrance of me. supper had concluded, our Lord took the cup, and he said to his disciples, drink from this cup, for this is the blood of the new covenant, shed for the remission of your sins. Drink from this, all of you. Do this in remembrance of me. Therefore, Lord, we remember what you have done on our behalf, that we are free, that we are new creatures in Christ, that you have withheld no good gift from your people. We celebrate the gift of the cross even as we celebrate the coming and the gift of the Holy Spirit who transforms us and sanctifies us, who allows that salvation to come alive within us, that we would be transformed into the very image of Jesus Christ. Continue that work. May these, this bread, this juice, may this Lord be to us a measure of your grace that we would be more like Christ and be fit, Lord, and prepared for that moment when we enjoy the supper together, together with you in the kingdom of heaven for all eternity. I'm going to invite our